previously on Serial Dater. I've been a terrible dater for most of my life, except for this one week in the spring of 2011 when I went on five first dates in one week. Date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie. Date number two in my five dates in one week marathon was with an airline pilot. Date number three, Argyle. The worst date of my life. Welcome to date number four, the texter. I already had another date planned for later that day, and I was much more excited about that one than this one. Date number five presented an entirely different challenge, with date number five I was at a distinct disadvantage. I really, really liked him. Portraits hung in the hall, watch as they fall again. I've taken a lot of wisdom from television, and by the time I was nearing the end of my five dates in one week marathon, I was thinking about one line in particular over and over from The West Wing, where Josh Lyman, played by Bradley Whitford, says, well, I mean, just the law of large numbers says we gotta win one one of these days, right? Yeah. So I'd met four guys who were either duds, drips, or just drab. Uh-oh, I'm starting to sound like a Sex in the City column. That in and of itself wasn't particularly exceptional, except now I was staring down leaving New York after a decade as an out gay man with nothing to show for it in the romance department. Wasn't I due for something different? Something better? The answer, of course, was no is no. That's not the way probability works. As my major professor at FSU, author Mark Weingartner, liked to say, I know just enough about this to be dangerous. It's entirely possible to flip a coin 50 times and have it come up tails every time. Every time you flip, the probability is still 50-50. And I wasn't even flipping a coin. I was trying to pluck an ace of spades out of a deck with 10,000 different cards, and I wasn't even sure my card was in there. This was the dark mental place I'd visit when feeling particularly shitty about my dating life. Nothing like good old solid high school probability math to reinforce my own despair. Because that's what it was. Desperation. I would apprehensively voice my despair to my friends, because having my worst fears dismissed, that I was inherently undateable, was somehow almost as bad as having them confirmed. I'd say, maybe I'd never find someone, and they'd reply, that's crazy, of course you'll find someone. It was all I could do not to reach into my mental briefcase and bring out the crazy scribbled proofs I had done in the fallout bunker of my brain. In a strange perversion of logic, though, this actually put less pressure on the bad dates. Oh, another dud? Throw him on the pile. Potentially good dates, though? Meeting up with a guy that I liked? It was exciting, sure, but also terrifying because there was so much more at stake. It wasn't just whether or not I'd have a good time. Each time I found a guy I liked, it became life or death. If we can all agree that Google will eventually take over the world, I know how they'll get me to fall in line. They currently have archived in their Gmail servers all of the emails I've written to guys I've liked over the years where I try to come off as cool and charming and whatever, but instead seem to turn into a sugar-drunk 12-year-old with a crush. The worst one by far is to a guy I went on two dates with in 2009 and fell for, like, hard. The day after our second date, he left for Central America for three months of research and had told me that he'd have limited email access while he was gone. I waited a month, trying to be, you know, chill, before I wrote him. 
This is how I suavely opened my email. I have a feeling that you're still in Nicaragua and probably won't get this for a few days. I'm trying to time this email so that it gets there before you regain internet access, but not so early that it gets lost in the one month of unanswered email shuffle. I guess you'll have to tell me how I did. I even titled the email This Monkey on My Back, which was supposed to be a joke because some of his research involved monkeys. But reading this in the hard, cold light of the future, I sound crazy. The summation was this. I could be frustrated about not meeting a guy that I liked, but that was it. You can't force the universe. But if I met a guy that I did like, and I torpedoed it by saying or doing something stupid, that was cause for some emotional self-immolation. And yet, stupid seemed too readily available. As Lauren Graham's character, cool mom Lorelai Gilmore, puts it early on in The Gilmore Girls, after learning her teenage daughter Rory, played by Alexis Bledel, is freaking out over a boy, you really like him, don't you? Yeah. Well, okay then. Just calm down. I just don't want to do or say anything else that's going to be remotely moronic. I'm afraid once your heart is involved, it all comes out in moron. As I come to the end of my week of dates, I face my greatest challenge yet. Not a jerk, nor a snooze, nor an ego, but something even worse. My own inner moron. On this episode of Serial Dater. hesitating before I messaged Matt. Oh yeah, I'm using his name here because uh, he was kind of great. It seems unbelievable to me now, knowing how things turned out, that I didn't reach out to him right away. But I'm pretty sure the reason I didn't run full speed into his OkCupid okay arms was this. He was kind of average looking, at least at first blush. And this made him eminently more possible, which is why I didn't message him right away. Are you confused? I don't blame you. Let me explain. There's a strange element of gamesmanship that goes on in my brain when looking at profiles on internet dating websites. This probably goes on, you know, everywhere, but let's talk about internet dating. I've already covered the importance that a profile picture plays in getting someone to click on this or that guy's profile, and I've talked about the struggle to get someone you've messaged to show up in real life, but I've skipped over the deliberation stage, a stage that often happens late at night, the only light in the house being the glow of the computer screen. When you're looking at profile pics, it's an easy binary. Do I find him attractive enough to want to know more about him? Once you're past the profile picture and in the profile, though, everything is on the table. How funny is he? What is he doing with his life? Do we like the same things? And for the love of God, what six things can't he live without? But it's not like there's a checklist of things I'm looking for. There have been a few deal-breakers, though I can only call two to mind at the moment. There was a period in the mid-aughts where there were many, many guys who listed The Da Vinci Code as their favorite book. I try not to be a snob, though clearly with only varying levels of success, but this was always a hard thing to stomach. I can understand someone who had a really good time reading The Da Vinci Code, who maybe even read it a few times. But your favorite book? Out of all of the books? 
The other deal breaker is more controversial. I cannot stand the internet abbreviation LOL on dating profiles. This probably comes across as even more snobbish than the Da Vinci Code thing, but it just irks me on some deep level. Here's why. Laughing out loud is great. I love laughing. I love people who make me laugh. All of my best friends crack me up. All of the guys I've had major crushes on have made me laugh. And there's nothing sweeter than being able to make a guy that you like laugh. My problem with LOL is that it's cheap, ill-considered, and meaningless language. People throw it around to show how silly or funny they are, but it never makes me think that the person using it is either one of those things. Think about it. When you come across a sentence like, I love going out on a Saturday night, but you could also talk me into staying in with Netflix, LOL. Is the guy laughing out loud as he's sitting there typing at the banana's prospect of watching a movie? Ha, Netflix. And if he is, is that a good thing? Even worse, though, is the out loud part, because it claims something is happening that most likely isn't. What makes LOL sinister is that, at least on a semiotic level, it's a total deconstruction of language. If we remember that the basics of semiotics are that there's a signifier, in this case the term LOL, and a signified, the idea of someone actually laughing out loud, then this term stretches the relationship between signifier and signified in both directions. On the signified end, we know that LOL doesn't mean that someone is laughing out loud, and we have a word for when you say something that isn't true. We call it lying. But on the signifier end, LOL doesn't necessarily get used to mean laughing out loud anymore. At best, it means they're laughing in their head. But then why say out loud? Instead, it's a kind of shorthand for, that's sort of funny or amusing, isn't it? In my mind, when I see it, I feel like I'm in some slap-happy ward of an insane asylum. For all my bluster, though, these things aren't even really deal-breakers. They're more like deal-threateners. It's not like I'll get to the end of some handsome, charming guy's profile and then find a stray LOL and kick him to the curb. Probably more important than all the individual data points, where they're from, what TV shows they like, how their Friday nights usually shake out, is how they write about them. I taught writing at Florida State University for three years, and I spent the entire time trying to express to my students how essential it was to be able to write well by using as examples essays, podcasts, and cover letters. How is it that I'm only realizing now that I should have been using dating profiles? One of the guidelines I tried to hammer into my students for professional writing, including <clears throat> emails to your teacher, is to think about how your writing represents who you are, the same way as, say, your clothes. You wouldn't wear pajamas to a job interview, so why wouldn't you use proper capitalization or write in complete sentences when sending in a cover letter, or, say, an email to your teacher? The kind of writing on dating profiles that would often turn me off hard enough to not message a guy even if he was jaw-droppingly attractive, was something that sartorially corresponded to a hot pink v-neck with the word sassy bitch silkscreened in tall gold letters on top of lime green short shorts. But let's say that I've liked the guy's pick enough to click through to his profile and find his profile interesting enough to want to reach out to him. This is where the game gets interesting. 
because even though I've been judging the shit out of this stranger, I'm not doing it in a vacuum, but in relation to and in comparison to the judgments I've made about myself. Is he as cute as me or cuter? Does he write as well as I do? Are his tastes more populist in nature, listing as his favorite shows Glee and Modern Family? Or is he a cultural elitist like me, citing obscure, critically praised shows like Danish political drama Borgen or the canceled pop-soaked comedy Happy Endings? All of this weighing and measuring doesn't even play out in a straightforward way. To help explain, let's pretend for a second that instead of messaging guys on dating websites, I was applying to college. I suppose the entire theory of college applications might have changed since I applied, but back then you grouped your schools into three categories. Reach schools, safety schools, and then all the schools in the middle. Apparently they're now calling these schools match or target schools, but that has a militaristic feel that scares me a little bit. The way my high school counselor explained it, I should have one or two safety schools and one or two reach schools, and then the rest should be those middle section schools. If we can inappropriately group guys into the same categories, which I agree is a horrible thing to do, but it's happening in my brain and probably yours anyway, so we might as well call it how we see it, you'd think that the same allocation would apply, and that I'd focus more on the guys I was well-matched with, throwing in a few reaches every now and again. But it was almost always the reverse. The thing about the reaches was that they were much less likely to write back, and so, in a weird way, there was a lower risk to reaching out to them. If they didn't write back, on some level I felt it was because I was out of their league. If they did write back, well, then lucky me. That sense of luck, of getting something that normally someone like me couldn't, well, it fueled my excitement. Anyone who's ever unexpectedly gotten upgraded to first class on an airplane will understand this feeling. As for the guys I felt well-matched with, well, this was risky on two fronts. If they didn't write back, then I felt degraded somehow. To get even more coarse and utilize momentarily the 1 to 10 scale of evaluating, you know, human beings, my thought process would go like this. Why hasn't he messaged me back? Doesn't he know we're both sixes? Unless maybe he's a seven? Or am I a five? Or a three? It's a downward spiral that's both foolish and insane, but one I know very well. And then there's the other risk. What if they do write back, and then I don't feel that, how lucky am I to get this upgrade excitement? One of the anxieties that plagues many chronically single people is the feeling that we're being too picky. This and many other anxieties of long-term single people are beautifully articulated and deconstructed by Sarah Eckel in her fantastic book, It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons You're Alone. So let's just say I've decided, however ludicrously, that me and Guy X are on the same level, whatever that means. And I reach out to him, and then he writes back. If I'm somehow unable to feel excited by him, instead of saying to myself, well, it's just not a good fit, it turns into, you are one choosy bitch, Charlie Beckerman. Or, as Eckel sarcastically puts it, hope you and your high standards stay warm tonight. So, to bring it laboriously back around to Matt, I don't know if I would have picked his profile out of the massive sea of gay male OkCupid profiles in New York City. 
But there's this thing on the OkCupid website called Quick Match where they show you a rapid succession of guys with a couple of pictures and an abbreviated version of their profile, and you decide if you like them or not. Now I think you just have to give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but back then you had to rate them, it sounds horrible and sometimes it was, using a scale of one to five stars. If you both gave each other four or five stars, the site puts you in touch. I had seen Matt's pic before in my general OkCupid perusings. It was a cute photo, but not in the way that stands out on dating websites. And while I'm disappointed in myself for passing his profile by at first, I know why it happened. In it, two big front teeth stuck out. It wasn't damning, but, you know, I think I've already established that I'm kind of a hypocritical, judgmental asshole. But then he showed up in Quick Match, and I was seeing more than just the single profile picture. His profile was top-notch. Okay, to be honest, I can't remember exactly what he had written up there, but his entries were short and quippy, like flat stones skipped across a pond. And in the land of long-winded, poorly written dating profiles, the concise and clever writer is king. But I could also see his other pictures. The one that caught my attention was one of him lying on a bed, clothed, with two friends. The friends are smiling big, toothy grins, but Matt is looking at the camera saucily. He's got on a charming, one-sided smirk, as if he was saying, I'm smarter than you, and I'm going to use said smarts for exciting ends. I'm going to talk a bit more about my research process for this project later on, but the only record I have of our initial conversation is the email notifications I got from OkCupid. I closed this account down long ago, and even if I'd kept it, I bet my messages would have been purged. At least that's what I'm telling myself. I don't have the messages themselves, but I do have the email timestamps. An email arrived in my inbox at 1.51pm on Tuesday, March 29th, which, if you're curious, was the day before my date with Bowtie, telling me someone had rated me highly. Within 15 minutes, I must have gone on, seen Matt's profile, and given him a corresponding high rating, because by 2.03 I had a message telling me that we'd liked each other. Which, if that's not a rhetorically problematic term invented by the digital age, I don't know what is. By 3pm, we had five or six exchanges. By the end of business, we'd talked about meeting up for drinks. Before 24 hours had passed, we'd traded phone numbers and had moved on to texting. On the habeas corpus scale, Matt was a high 2, which might be the optimal habeas corpus score, connoting an eagerness to meet but falling short of impetuousness. From the very beginning, I knew that our senses of humor were more in sync. After we chatted about my working in comics, I asked him what he did. I don't think I actually mentioned in my profile what it is that I do. Probably because it's so boring it would melt your skull. In all reality, though, it's not so bad. I work as an administrative assistant and- Oh god, your skull! I'm so sorry! Marry me already. Our text conversations had a levity and playfulness to them that was as intoxicating as any stupid love poem. Continuing from above... I'm excited to hear about your job. It sounds much more exciting than mine. I don't know. When it's good, it's great, and when it's not, it's really not. But I don't want to crush your dreams too much. Maybe I should just let you believe it's the superhero equivalent of Willy Wonka's factory. I expect nothing less. Let's save the crushing disappointment for the actual date, at which point you'll discover my awful smell and my terrifying nervous tick. Fantastic. And you can find out about my absolute dearth of style or awareness of personal space. Counting the days. For now, enjoy your evening. 
I'm off to bed because I'm apparently 75 years old. It was 9.45. Good night. Sleep well, Gramps. By this point, not 36 hours after we started conversing, I was already in it. I really liked him. This made him totally different from the other four in almost every respect. But perhaps most importantly, for the first time all week, I found myself much more concerned that he liked me than that I like him. To underscore how accidental this week of dates was, in addition to having scheduled two dates for Sunday, I'd also agreed to help a friend of mine move between my date with the texter, episode 4 in case you missed it, and Matt. I didn't even have time to feel that badly about letting the texter down. I was too busy lifting pieces of furniture through the narrowest of hallways and helping hold down parking spaces on streets where doing such a thing can get you killed, or, you know, like yelled at a lot. I was so disorganized that I didn't realize that moving furniture would leave me kinda gross and disheveled, and without enough time to run back to my apartment to shower before I had to meet Matt. In a bit of a panic, I popped into the Filene's basement near my friend's apartment and bought an extra t-shirt to wear for the move so I wouldn't ruin the nice one I'd worn to my brunch date with the texter and had planned to wear out with Matt. Planning the date with Matt had been a breeze. Want to do No Idea Bar? Sounds great. They have a hilarious website. I try and support bars with hilarious websites. You're a good man. Unfortunately, I hadn't taken into account that No Idea Bar was closed on Sundays. So, once again caught without a plan, I suggested we head to good old Revival. It felt appropriate in a way, ending my date week where it began, like the opening and closing ceremonies of the dating Olympics. Giddy from the imminent arrival of spring and the novelty of 50-degree weather, we sat in the backyard at Revival, both of us drinking beer. He had worn a cute button-up shirt and a leather jacket with jeans, and his glasses were starting to remind me of Milhouse from The Simpsons, but in an endearing and honestly kind of sexy way. He was not as conventionally hot or attractive as Bowtie. He wasn't that rail-thin skinniness that passes for fit like Argyle or the Texter. He didn't even have an interesting job like the pilot. And yet, he'd easily won out. He'd made me laugh. If you hadn't already sensed it, Matt and I had excellent rat-a-tat. We talked through one beer, then two, then four. We discussed our favorite coming-out movies, agreeing that these were more important to us because who had time to read a whole book about coming out? We talked about comic books, and I told him that he had to read Scott Pilgrim and that I was going to lend him my copy. I can almost hear the David Attenborough commentary. The adult nerd homosexual signals his interest to his potential mate by displaying his colorful graphic novel collection. It is clear that he is emotionally and sexually aroused. We somehow segued into a long discussion about the wonder and joy of Mexican food, which led us to head across Union Square to what was, in my humble opinion, which is in no way humble, one of the only decent burritos in New York at the time. After dinner, we walked through the square and grabbed a bench on the east side of the park. 
The trees were just starting to get their leaves back, and the park was regaining that canopy-esque feel it has in the summer months. We kept talking for a while, and I'm pretty sure we both chewed some mint gum. And then, finally, after weeks of texting and hours of bad dates, I got to do what, on some level, was all I felt I could ever really hope for. I got to kiss a guy that I liked. For 45 minutes. If you're wondering why I would ever decide to have two dates on a Sunday, though why this particular piece of crazy would stick out against the general backdrop of my insanity, I'm not sure. The reason was this. 14 hours after kissing Matt goodnight, I hopped on a plane to Arizona to go check out the University of Arizona's creative writing program. I must have mentioned it to Matt, despite my previous assertion that my upcoming MFA was second date information, because I texted him from Minneapolis during my layover. Tucson was a cool town, though the program didn't feel like a great fit, and they were only offering me partial funding. When I got back to New York, Matt and I went on a second date to Botanica on Houston, and afterwards I took him to the rooftop of my parents' old apartment building, the doorman still remembered me, to look at the view and to make out some more. We met up again that weekend, He came over to my apartment and we watched Drop Dead Gorgeous and A Beautiful Thing, two movies we'd talked about on our first date. I sort of assumed that every young gay is required to watch A Beautiful Thing when they're 16, but in case you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's set just outside of London in council housing, the British equivalent of housing projects, and it's about two boys who fall in love. And if you haven't heard these two working class white boys awkwardly flirt with each other from inside their respective closets, well, then, you haven't seen Shakespeare the way it was meant to be seen. Do you always wear glasses when you read? I'm supposed to. You don't in school. It's hardly fetching, is it? No, it looks all right. Yeah? Yeah, I'm telling you. So how's your sandwich? Cheese and salad, bang on food. Good for your spots, sir. That's right, good for your spots and all. Have we got any spots? Yours are clear enough. Cheers. I'd forgotten that all of the songs were by Mama Cass Elliot, and a few days later I bought her Greatest Hits CD, which became my soundtrack for my final months in New York. Matt stayed over, but we didn't sleep together. I did get to see his tattoo, a Polish cross on the back of his shoulder, and I got to sleep next to him, and see his face first thing in the morning. A day later I was off to Tallahassee. I still hadn't received an offer of full funding from either school, and was starting to consider turning both schools down if the money didn't come through. I could stay in New York, keep working at Marvel, take more writing workshops at Sackett Street, and reapply the next year. Maybe I could keep dating Matt. I tried to pretend like that wasn't weighing on my mind, but hopefully by now most of you have realized that that would have been impossible for me. And then, as soon as I landed in Tallahassee, the funding from Florida State came through, and before I knew it, I was accepting their offer of admission. Back in New York, Matt and I went on one more date, hitting up a Mexican place in Brooklyn. I told him I'd accepted the offer from Florida State, and he seemed happy for me. Though, I thought I detected a little bit of... I don't know. 
After dinner, we went back to his apartment. I thought for some more fooling around, but after just a few seconds of kissing, he begged off. He said that he didn't want to get involved if I was leaving in a couple of months. I tried to explain that my only goal was to enjoy my time in New York as much as I could, and that I'd like to enjoy that time with him. I tried to argue that time is a construct and that we should take advantage of our connection while we could. He said that he'd just gotten out of a bad relationship and that he couldn't... I guess that he just couldn't. Ultimately, I found I was simply unable to accurately articulate myself. What I wanted to say to him was that if we kept dating and broke up the day I moved to Florida, our 10-week fling would be the longest romantic relationship of my life. But there didn't seem to be any way to say that without coming across as pathetic, needy, romantically disabled. What I wanted to say to him was, make my concerns more important than yours. Do this for me because this is something I can't do for myself. But I didn't say that because it was too early, too new. Theoretically, we didn't owe each other anything yet, or at least we owed each other very little. Barbara, the therapist, said at some point during my year with her that I kept thinking that there was a magic string of words that, if I could only divine them, I could get this guy or that guy to like me. But, in fact, this magic string of words doesn't exist, despite every rom-com where there's a sudden and life-changing verbal expression of love. I agree with her on that. Words are powerful, but it's hard, if not impossible, to talk someone into feelings they aren't already feeling. With Matt, though, I'm not so sure. Sometimes I think that if I'd said to him what I just said to you, it might have gone differently. Instead, Matt said the five words that I had come to hate with a fiery passion when spoken by guys who I had feelings for. I'd like to stay friends. I understand where the impulse comes from, a desire to soften the blow, and that it comes from a good place, but I've never been able to stomach it. This is how things had ended with that guy who'd gone to Central America for research, and with the guy from a month or two earlier, the one who I'd been willing to scrap grad school for. With the second guy, we'd had a long string of confessional emails which were slowly killing me about how he really liked me but was trying to make something work with another guy, and I decided that instead of writing him another email, I'd send him a voicemail. But for some reason, his voicemail wasn't set up, so I recorded a voice memo and emailed it to him, all of which is to say I still have the message and will play a bit for you here. Also, my apologies for the weird latent Dan Savage impersonation, I'd been mainlining episodes of Savage Love around this time. Um, I think for me, you know, the idea of being your friend while not being able to be your boyfriend is kind of torture. So I don't want you to take that in any kind of bad way. I just want you to know that I'm not saying fuck you. I'm just trying to protect myself, I guess. Um, And yeah, I don't know. Other than that, I guess... With that, I feel like right now I just sort of know this one way to like you, which is to really, really like you and want to date you and want to make out with you and want to sleep with you. And So when Matt asked to be just friends, I did the same thing I do for almost every guy who's turned me down but still expressed an interest in friendship. I lobbed it off.
I did see Matt once more before I left town. We met up in Washington Square Park so that he could give me my copy of Scott Pilgrim back. I wish I could say I remembered what we talked about, but I can't. By the time I was ready to leave for Tallahassee, though, I felt good about my week of dates. There was something incredibly uplifting about the idea that if I agreed to meet five strangers in one week, that one of them would turn out not only to be nice, but kind of great. I knew that the one out of five probability was a little hyperbolic, but I still found it reassuring. To call back to that West Wing quote about the law of large numbers, I sort of feel like we're in an age of large numbers. Maybe that's just what the digital age breaks down to, different iterations of big data. For anything we seek now, jobs, apartments, partners, it's become so easy for huge numbers of people to throw their hats in the ring that the only reliable method of success is to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. The internet may have made it easier to find these things, but not that much easier to get them. So, that's it. Just kidding. No way that's it. To grab one of my favorite quotes from the comic The Watchmen, a quote that was left out of the film, come on, Zack Snyder! As the bad guy asks Dr. Manhattan if he did the right thing in the end, Dr. Manhattan cracks a Mona Lisa-esque smile and says, In the end? Nothing ends. Nothing ever ends. I thought I'd learned something from that week. I thought that it had told me something important about my world, about my love life, or lack thereof, about the law of big numbers. I could not have been more wrong. Tune in next week for the final episode of Serial Dater. Dater is written, produced, and edited by me. Special thanks to Fatih Ahmed, Anna Marquardt, Julia Weatherell, Diane Roberts, and everyone in her Fall 2013 article and essay workshop. Extra special thanks to the Petticoat Lane Writers Residency and the Michael and Karen Beckerman Fund for Aspiring Podcasters. Matt played by Adam Enright, music by Prom Date. You can listen to and buy their album, Portraits, at www.promdatemusic.com. For more information about Serial Dater, please visit our website at serialdaterpodcast.com.